You already know that if you need a car wash, you need to go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. They've got all the tools and expertise to keep your car clean, both inside and on the outside. You want it clean inside because if anybody gets in your car, they're not going to want it look like a pigsty. Plus, you're going to want it clean of all those germs. You want it clean on the outside because if you're going to be pulling up in somebody's neighborhood, maybe going to see a friend, they're going to see the outside of your car and go, wow. This guy, he knows what he's doing with his car washes. That's because Tommy's Express Car Wash is going to take care of you. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax. That's right. Have it looking real spiffy. Wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush, and spot-free rinse and vacuums as well. If you're like me, you have a dog. I have a golden retriever. She sheds so much. So I need the vacuums at Tommy's Express Car Wash, and boy, do they have them. They do them right. That's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's Express Car Wash. And don't forget to download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's at Tommy's Express Car Wash. All right, we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a low right now. That. You don't got time to say. All right, let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on KLWN. Matt Tate will join us at the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com in 35 minutes. Actually, less than that. It's like 25 minutes. Uh, Kevin Flaherty will join us at 440 talk a little big 12 football late night in the fog is this friday i can't believe we're already going to be in october in what three days i think thursday is the first day on october and late night in the fog right off the bat as well with the return of ku basketball now it'll be another about month or so a little after a month between late night in the fog and the first game for ku but bill self spoke with the media earlier today and we'll try to play that audio we've got some lance leipold presser audio we're going to play for you today as well whether we get to that today or tomorrow with bill self um but one of the most intriguing things that i thought that he talked about was that you know the team's practice ready right now but it's not game ready and obviously you don't necessarily expect that to be the case you're a month away from the season but that's like the ultimate balance of this team you have on one side of things four or five starters return. And if you said four or five starters return to any team in college basketball, you'd say, oh, they've continuity. They know what they're doing. There's there's not going to be a, a long process of kind of feeling each other out and getting to, to know each other while you're playing with each other on the court and off the court. That's not totally the case for KU because outside of those four or five returning starters, it is a bunch of newcomers for KU. I'm trying to think of, of the bench guys returning who are guys who are going to uh, Dewan Harris and Mitch Lightfoot. I think that's it. I might be missing somebody of guys who aren't maybe necessarily starters, though maybe Dewan Harris will be a starter. We'll get to that in a moment, um, who are returning from last year's team. Uh, there's so many new parts that you have to integrate into this unit. And you you don't just have that. The 
conflict of, well, four or five starters are back, but a lot of everyone else is new. You also have the conflict of, well, we have a lot of experience, but most of these guys don't have experience specifically playing for Bill Self in this system, for this school, at this stadium, with these teammates. It's a conflict of two things that is very unique, and I don't know that we've seen this before with Bill Self and KU. Typically, it's either, yeah, this team's really experienced because they've all played together at KU, or this team's inexperienced. You know, you do have some older upperclassmen transfers, but also the players around them, too, are youngsters. Like, when you brought in Dedrick Lawson and KJ Lawson, who had to sit out a year due to transfer, they weren't surrounded by a bunch of returning starters. They were surrounded by freshmen with Devon Dotson and Quentin Grimes, and then Yudoka gets hurt, and you're just surrounded by a freshman, David McCormick. You're surrounded by freshmen. That's not the case with the newcomers this year. So it's going to be really interesting for me not just how they gel all season long, but how they gel early in the year. And you're playing some good opponents, and we know that it's not as important how you're playing in November, December, as you are in February and March. That's obvious. But ideally, you'd like to have it both ways. And ideally, you'd like one of those, obviously, dominant seasons where you're, you're just great, you're dominant from start to finish, because that's how good you are the whole way through. Well, I wonder what what will be the case for this year's KU team. You have, obviously, a tough schedule per usual in the non-con. You start off with Michigan State. You have uh, road trips to, I think, Colorado's on the road. Um, you play Harvard in during winter break at home, which could be kind of a, a sleepy game. You have the uh, tournament down in Orlando where you could be playing Alabama along with a couple other good opponents at St. John's. Uh, there's going to be some tough non-conference matchups for this team. So I, I, I'm just kind of curious to see how it looks very early in the season and if it does click right away. And if it does, I think that's a great sign moving forward. Here's Bill Self, though, talking about his team maybe taking a little bit longer this year to get going. I actually think that we're ready to practice, but we're not near ready to play. Uh, uh, I, I think that we had, we had a, a, a really good boot camp, probably great boot camp. You know, our health is pretty good, even though we are dealing with some things that everybody deals with. Uh, I think we have a lot of nice pieces, but the person that's probably not as ready as anybody is me because I don't have an idea yet on how it all fits. So, so I, they, they may be more ready to practice than I am to actually understand what we have in practice. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how all the pieces fit once we get comfortable together. But we're yeah. still, but man, we're, we're, I'm telling you, most, most years, like, like in, in 07 and 08, when those kids were all freshmen and you knew you had them back and they were sophomores and juniors, I mean, we, we, we were into uh, 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 how we're going to attack a matchup zone the first week of practice. Sure. sure. This, this year, we may be into that uh, the week of the first game because there's just so many other things that we got to get to. Uh, to get everybody comfortable and to know what everybody would do well in those situations, how they would play well in those situations, that it's pretty much an unknown for me because we have so many new guys. Yeah, I mean, he he's going to have to figure out what lineups work best to each other, what players pay, play best to each other, how many minutes are certain guys play, playing, the different rotations. Are you going to play two big basketball? Are you going to play four guards out the whole time? There are just so many questions you have to figure out with this rotation that makes it a little more difficult. So, I wouldn't be surprised if they have a, a few stumbling points early in the season and then they do get it going, even though the talent and experience 
might make you think, oh, no, this will be a complete product right off the bat. I'm not sure how much that is the case. Now, I mentioned that Dewan Harris, maybe he is a starter, and you might have heard that and gone, what? Um, because you have four out of five starters returning. The one who's gone is Marcus Garrett. You would just assume, oh, Remy Martin's going to figure to, to slide in there. Here's what Bill Self said about the point guard position, and it was specifically framed about, you know, is this kind of a battle between four guys with Dewan Harris, Joe Yesifu, Remy Martin, and uh, Bobby Pettiford. Well, I think I think you just you just hit it uh, and throw Bobby Pettiford in there too. So those would be the four guys. Kyle probably not as that you know coming early. He's probably uh, a little bit of time away from from cracking that foursome. But those would be the four guys that are not fighting for one spot that are fighting for probably one and three quarter spots. Uh, we can certainly play big like we did last year. Can play, let's say CB and Ochai or or or, or uh, Jalen or or, or Jalen Coleman lands. We can certainly play those guys at the two, three, four, so to speak, but there's going to be more times this year where we play two of those four together that you just mentioned. So it's going to, it's going to be right now. It's, I would say that, that Dewan, because him, him being around is probably uh, uh, if we were going to play tomorrow, I would say he'd get the majority of the minutes just because he's been around, but that's also uh, us, uh, with the understanding that Remy hadn't been here, you know, Remy, Remy was here and then he wasn't even healthy two of the weeks he was here. And then he wasn't here in the summer for the most part, only here for two practices in the summer. So he's not at the same stage. So he's comfort level away from doing that. Those would be, you know, one of those two will start a point. Uh, uh, but I can see them both playing a lot together. Joseph is really more of a combo than he is a point. Uh, but that's how we, that's when we usually had our best teams playing with a couple of combos. So, you know, he's in the mix as well, but, but when he's in the game, I, I anticipate Juan or Remy or possibly Bobby being in the game with him, if that makes sense. Okay. So he gave a lot away in terms of how they view that, the point guard spot. And I think that's telling in a couple ways. One, Joe Yesifu isn't going to really ever be out there as like the primary point guard. He's going to be playing next to Remy Martin, or Dewan Harris, or whatever, Bobby Pettiford in different lineups. The other part of that, you know, you hear him saying, oh, Dewan Harris would be the starter as of today. Well, once Robbie Martin is more healthy and getting into it, I, I don't really think that's going to apply. Like, Remy Martin's going to be the guy. What becomes more interesting here is with the confidence and the level that it seems like Dewan Harris is performing in the preseason, makes you wonder a couple things. One, could he still be a starter next to Remy Martin where you take a guy like Christian Brown and put him off the bench and then you have those two starting guards with Harris and Remy Martin? And beyond that, I think it was very easy to get locked in before the season to say, you know, I don't know how much Dewan Harris is going to play. Maybe he'll play 10 minutes a game. You have a lot of minutes to go to the guards with Remy Martin and Joe Yesfu and maybe Bobby Pettiford. And, you know, some people may be assuming, oh, can Bobby Pettiford usur usurp Dewan Harris. I, I don't think that's happening. And I think I'm at a point now where I would say I feel pretty confident Dewan Harris is going to give you 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes a game at this point in time. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Matt Tate joins us in about 20 minutes. And I'm all caught up with my yard work. It's a wonderful time of day. That's because it's time to talk to Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World. KUSports.com joins us on Tuesdays here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, Matt, I, I do want to get into a little 
KU football here. But uh, Bill Self with, met with the media earlier today. We got late night in the fog coming up this Friday. Uh, I know it's kind of an odd setting that is far from indicative about you know how the team is going to play and rotations and all that stuff. Uh, but with so many new faces on this KU team, I think maybe late night in the fog this year can maybe serve as a bit more than normal just in terms of seeing guys uh, in a KU uniform for the first time. Uh, is there a certain newcomer or maybe a couple guys that you're most interested in seeing what they look like in the first time maybe you see them in person on Friday night? Yeah, no question, right? I mean, Remy Martin's obviously number one. Everybody's everybody's probably going to put him at the top of their list. Um, I'd be surprised if, if anybody had anybody higher. I mean, he's he's got a chance to be such a big part of this team and and give them something that they were missing last year and 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 make them a you know a true contender for a national title. Um, so that's that's exciting, and and he's obviously a name that people know and and a guy that people have seen play. So. It's always fun to see, well, does he look like the same dude in, in our colors? You know, I mean, I'm sure that's how a lot of fans are thinking. So um, that, that's, that's probably right there at the top. He's been battling an ankle injury, so he may not be full speed. So if he doesn't look great, don't worry about that. He is a great player. We've seen that over four years at Arizona State. So no need to worry about it if he doesn't look like he's just killing it and on fire and the world is his. I mean, uh, that ankle injury I don't think is anything serious, but it's definitely hobbled him a little bit over the last several weeks. So keep that in mind when you're watching or reading about it. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, a couple of other guys that, that jump out, I mean, because we've seen guys like Jalen Coleman lands at Iowa State and, and Joseph Yusefu at, at Drake, I mean, you know, we didn't watch them closely, but you can see highlights and you can see footage and, and you kind of know what those guys are about and what they can do at the college level. So, sure, it'll be fun to see what they do when the season rolls around, but because you've seen them a little bit, I don't I don't put them as high on the list. I think two freshmen, though, K.J. Adams and, and Zach Clements, I'm excited to see what they look like. I mean, those are guys that, that both have a chance to, to find a way into the rotation right away. And at the same time, they could also be guys that don't get a lot of run their first season at all because of the depth on this team. So um, how ready do they look? How, how good do they look? Um, do they look like they, they can make that transition? I mean, they're both big dudes. They're both athletic dudes. I think that, you know, there's a lot to be excited about with each of them, but um, it, it'll be fun to see how they look when, they, when they're out there with, with guys like Mitch Lightfoot and David McCormick and, you know, guys that have been here and, and done a lot of things at the college level. So I would say those are, the, those are the main guys for me. You probably could throw Cam Martin in there too because the, the D2 to D1 blue blood is, is such a wild, wild journey that doesn't happen all the time. So it's kind of fun to think about how he'll look. Um, but, but I also have seen a lot of highlights of him, and you kind of you know what he is. So, um, yeah, you know, long story short, um, everybody. Right. Like you said, there's so many new guys and and it's an exciting time. And, and there's a lot to look at and a lot to to learn from late night, as you mentioned, maybe more than most years. Yeah. And I, I think one of the comments today that Bill Self said that's getting some run is this comment about Remy Martin, who you mentioned at the beginning there in the ankle injury and uh, Dewan Harris, it sounds like, would be the leader to be point guard one right now. And that obviously to me, comes across as, well, it's because Remy Martin's limited right now. But I, I think where I take more out of that isn't that, oh, Remy Martin's going to be benched or be the backup. I, I still think Remy Martin is obviously 
your clear starter at that point guard spot. But I think what I take out of that is that Dewan Harris is going to play a lot this season, and you're going to see a lot of two-guard lineups with Dewan Harris and Remy Martin. Zero doubt about it. I mean, uh, you know, I wrote a story a couple of months ago with self saying that very thing. And, and uh, I talked to him in April, right when the season ended, before they knew that they were even going to get Yusefu or, or Remy Martin. And he was so high on him then. I mean, he said, he said that Dewan had one of the better springs of anybody on the roster and, and that he was going to play. And one of the coolest things from that article and from that conversation was, was, you know, he said, I would think Dewan's minutes would be the same no matter what. No matter who's here or who isn't here, he is going to have a fairly substantial role, and he's going to be a guy we can count on to fill that role. And if we add five more guys, great. He's still going to play that role. If we don't add anybody else, he's at least going to play that role and maybe add you know, more minutes to that role. So I, I think they've been so high on him from the very beginning. Um, when they got him, they felt like it was a steal. Um, when when he played last year and played the way he's capable of playing with sort of that free mind, but also just with attack mode and, and an aggressive mentality, he changed games. I mean, we all saw it. Self talked a lot about it last season. Uh, there were a lot of games that he was one of the major, major factors in the way that the thing turned out. And so it, it should make sense because you have to remember for a year he was here redshirting. And then last year was his first taste of actually getting out there on the court. And it was such a different year for so many reasons. And the team, you know, took its time to kind of come together and they didn't really know what they were for a lot of the season. So that's hard for a, an individual's development. But now that he's been here for two years and he's into his third season, he knows what Bill Self's about. He understands what, what's required to be a Kansas basketball player. And, oh, by the way, they just happen to be two of his biggest strengths. One of them is defense. One of them is team first, playing for each other. And nobody does that better than Dewan Harris. So I, I, I think that there's no doubt that he's going to have a big role I think you're exactly right. You know, if they weren't so loaded, um, and, and and let's say a guy like Ochai had had decided to go pro or something like that, you you you'd probably be looking at a pretty strong case for Remy and and Harris starting next to each other. Um, but I don't think they have to do that now. So um, I think I think his his minutes will come much like they did last year, but I think they'll come early and often, and I think he'll have a regular sort of part of the rotation and, and, and a regular role that he knows what he's going to be and they know what they're going to ask of him, and I think he should be great from, from day one. I mean, I, I think Kansas fans should absolutely love the kid, and I think a lot of them do, but there's a, there's a few holdouts out there still. And I'm I'm just telling you, I think after this year, early on, I mean, probably by December, November, um, or excuse me, December, January, I think he'll have convinced every KU fan out there that that he's just an absolute joy to have on your team and the kind of guy you want on your side instead of the other side every day of the week. Well, I think it's interesting too with this team early in the season in regards to both the Remy Martin, you know, injury if if he's a little slow to start the year and. Also, you have kind of the dichotomy of, well, they're a really experienced team, but they're not experienced playing for Bill Self, except you do return four starters, so the starting lineup might be experienced playing for Bill Self, whereas the other guys looking to fill in and into new roles 
are not going to be. And it's not that I don't doubt that you have all the talent that you need there. I just wonder how long is this going to take, right? And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're clicking in January, February, and March, then then who cares? But I do wonder what it's going to look like at the start of the year. And that's something else that Bill Self kind of touched on, the fact that, you know, and I think this was a question asked by you that he was talking to you about um, how they're a little behind where they normally would be, or not necessarily behind, but they're taking it slower than right. they normally would. And I wonder if we see kind of lumps early in the season for this team, and this is the type of team that doesn't really hit their stride until later in the year. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and you know, that that was kind of the, the, the book on last year's team, right? It took them a while, um, and, and they took their lumps even through December and into January, and then they figured out a couple of tweaks on defense that made them much better, and then they kind of hit their stride. And, and they were playing as well as a lot of teams heading into the tournament, but they still – that, that that's a different animal than I think you're going to see this year because what last year's team was kind of missing was was what this year's team has, which is, like you said, four returning starters. I mean, yeah, they had Ochai, and, and yeah, they had Marcus, and yeah, they had David McCormick, who had started some, and same with Christian Brown, and that's your four, you know, this year with, with the exception of Marcus, and you plug Jalen Wilson into there. But these four that are back this year as returning starters are just, I mean, they're, they're, they're upperclassmen. They're so experienced. They're so solid. They've proven a lot already. Even even Jalen and, and CB have proven a lot already, and uh, and and they both still have room to grow. And, and from everything I hear, have have looked as good as anyone so far this this preseason. So um, when you combine that with the fact that these other guys are are, are moving along right and and coming along slowly, as he mentioned, I, I think it just kind of sets a better pace. It sets a better. Uh, reality for you because you're just you're not as reliant on the new guys or the young guys to have to improve so much like last year right I mean if Jalen Wilson wasn't ready and couldn't be a factor early in the season they would have lost two or three more games I mean Jalen was as good as anybody but they absolutely needed him that won't be the case I don't think with a guy like even Remy Martin but but especially with a guy like Yosefu or a guy like Cam Martin or a guy like Jalen Coleman Lance, they're not going to need them to be as impact ready right away as as they did last year with some of those guys. And so that while it does seem odd uh, to t- kind of take some time and, and move slower, it really affords you the opportunity to do that because you know you've got your four horses that you can push and you can count on and and they'll they'll pull the sled while all these other guys get up to speed. So I think, you know, it remains to be seen if it works out this way, but I think if you had to draw it up, this is exactly how you'd want it because you, 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 you have the experience you need to, to get, get off the ground and go early. And then any of that experience and any of that comfort that comes from any of those newcomers through December and into January and into February that that just seems like gravy at that point. And, and, you know, if, if they're not themselves, if they're not really clicking and they're not their full version of themselves until mid February, because things moved along slowly behind those four starters. Well, that, there's nothing wrong with that because that makes them even more dangerous. And I think there's the opportunity for a lot of different lineups 
Uh, you know, you could have a, a college version of some load management even. I mean, you know, even with Remy Martin. I mean, if he's, if he's not ready, they're not going to push him. They, w- they want him ready for February, March rather than let's kill him to get him back for, for November, December. I mean, it's just, you know, they'll let him take his time to heal just like they'd let anyone. So I think it's, uh, I think it's as good a roster as they've had in a long time, top to bottom. I think it's, uh, it's talented. It's, it's deep. Um, it's versatile. It's athletic. There's, there's not a whole lot of holes. I'm sure the coaches would argue that. I'm sure they would tell me a list of 10 different holes and weaknesses and all that, but you know that's what coaches do, and they've they've got to find those things. I I think they're nitpicking if they're trying to do it, though. I think this is this is a loaded roster and, and should be a really really good team. Talking with Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com here on RCST. All right, let's switch over to football. Um, KU falls to Duke, and you know you can kind of view this. It's it's that perfect medium of glass half full or glass half empty. When you were competitive again into the third quarter, the offense looked good. You got the running game going. Jason Bean continued to look good. So does the receivers. But the defense really struggled. And it was a game that you made some self-inflicted mistakes and had some difficult decisions and uh, shot yourself in the foot a few times that if you don't do that, maybe you can come away with a victory there. So let's devy things out here. Uh, what did you What did you think was the most positive aspect of the game for KU against Duke? Well, I think the most positive thing by far is that it's something that fans have been looking for for a while, right? And no one wants to give up 52 points, but if you're going to give up 52 points, you might as well score 33. And you might as well feel good about that. And I I think they can. I think they should. I mean, obviously, you know, their first half was good again. And and so you point to that as positive. Regardless of whether, let's say they play, you know, eight more good first halves and fall apart in eight more second halves the rest of the way. I still think at the end of the year, you'd look back and go, well, hey, we'll take that. We were competitive in year one in the first half of every game. So now what do we have to do? We have to stack something onto that. We have to build off of that. We have to get better. We have to get more experience. We have to get more conditioned. We have to be more confident. We have to be stronger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's something because for Kansas fans and people who have followed the program, being competitive or having a lead even at halftime, has been almost impossible to fathom for a long, long time. So I, I think that, that that's obviously a positive thing. And the fact that, that Jason Bean found some some weapons. I mean, Tory Lachlan, of course, was a bright spot in that game. Um, for me, he's only as bright a spot as, as, he, as he is moving forward because you can't have that be the outlier. You've got to find a way to get that guy involved now. And I think they know that, and I think they found a way there. And so do it more, and, and let's see if, if he can bring something to the offense that you need. Um, Devin Neal looked good. Uh, Lassiter and, and Trevor Wilson looked good. I mean, there was a lot to like about the offense, and, and again, it just couldn't keep up in the second half, but a lot of that is on the defense. So I, I think you just have to be happy, first and foremost, with, with putting up 33 points because we all know in the Big 12 you're not going to win if you don't get to the 30s. It's just too hard, and it's proven to be too hard year after year after year after year. So the fact that they've shown they can go on the road, and yeah, it wasn't a Big 12 team, but they now know they can put up 30 points against someone. I mean, you take that and you put it in the in the good pile, and you say, let's, let's see if we can get something out of that. So I, I think that's without question the biggest thing, especially because a loss is a loss is a loss, right? But 
it's those 52 to 7 losses that really hurt. It's those those 52 to 10 losses that make fans just roll their eyes and not want anything to do with you. If you can hang and you can put up points and even though 52 is not what you want to see, but 52 to 33 doesn't sound nearly as bad as 52 to 7. So there's some positivity to be gained there and and obviously you have to gain on it and you have to keep improving and you have to make those games closer into the fourth quarter and all of that stuff before the fans feel good about it, but at least they can feel a little good about it. They don't have to feel like you just got annihilated and never had a chance because that wasn't the case. They were very much in that game for a while. All right, so those were the positives in the game. Like I said, there was, you know, obviously it wasn't all positives as well. What did you view to be the biggest negative out of that game? Well, I, yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of that's defense, and, and I, I just – the, the linebacking core continues to be such a such a difficult position to, to kind of figure out. I mean, they're obviously lacking there. Um, it, it, even in a situation like you know Gavin Potter's missed sack, right? I mean that that that's a potentially huge play um, at at, a, at an important time in the game, and and he doesn't get the play made, and, and then I think two or three plays later they score and. And that kind of set the whole game on a different path from there. And, and you know, you hate to pick on one kid and, and nitpick one play like that. But, but those are the kinds of plays when you're in the shoes of Kansas, you have, to, you have to have guys make those plays. And so I don't think it was just that single play by that single player that, that, that's the negative. I think it's the fact that, that, that it's still apparent that this defense is as – much as they do have in some spots with, with guys like Kenny Logan or, or Kyron Johnson or whatever, um, they're still obviously missing some, some important pieces and, and some, some guys they can count on to make those types of plays. So, um, you know, linebacking, the linebacking position seems to, to be the, the weakest to me by far it has for most of the season. And, and so the problem there is, you know, if you just don't have them in your program and you don't have them on your roster, then it's hard to figure that out and fix it in the middle of the season because you can't you can't just play seven defensive linemen. You know, you can't just play nine cornerbacks. You have to play at least a couple of linebackers out there for your for your scheme to work, and and so that's problematic. But you know, those guys will they're all working hard. There there there's no question about that. If there's one common theme that Lance Leipold continues to preach week after week after week, it's that effort is not an issue with this team. And I know he loves that. I know he appreciates that because he's been around rebuilding programs and uh, other programs that, that you have had to worry about the effort from time to time. And that, that just makes a hard job even harder. So the fact that he's continuing to say and sing the praises of the work these guys are putting in, that's a very positive thing too, and 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 I I mean I think that's something that fans can can embrace and get behind, and you know they feel good about that. Like, how many KU teams have we seen where effort was a problem? Plenty. So it's nice to see that even this one that's taking its lumps and probably will the rest of the season. You know, at least you you feel good about the fact that they're they're putting all they got into it, and and they're learning and they're growing, and and it's the start of something. It's the start of a foundation that they hope will will be fruitful down the road. But um, you know, it doesn't get there without block one and block two, and and so that they've they've got to continue to 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 wait and be patient and 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 just sort of hang in there 
while that all plays out. And, uh, and, and I think as long as you can continue to give great effort while you're doing that, then, then you can actually take something from the season. So, um, you know, it, yeah, I, it, that was a tangent from your question, but I think we were still talking about the, the negatives, and, and there's no doubt that the defense giving up 52 points and, and, and having some struggles with big plays and giving up big plays, I mean, that's, that's problematic for sure. He's Matt Tate. You can check out all his work, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Matt, thank you so much for the time, and enjoy Run DMC on Friday night. Yeah, let's do that. That'll be fun. I uh, Do you have a favorite I, Run DMC song? I don't know, man. I think the Walk This Way thing with Aerosmith is pretty pretty cool. I mean, you know, I, I, Tricky's awesome. I get that, you know, but, but I think the man, I think back to the 80s, and I was a kid, you know, I'm old now, and uh I remember that video, and that was pretty cool. You know, Steven Tyler was a cool dude, and Run DMC was cool, and here they were in this video together crossing the two, you know, uh, styles of music and and blending them together, and they seemed like they were all digging it together and feeling themselves and enjoying it. I mean, it's it's pretty fun to look back at how long ago that was, and and, uh, both of them still doing it, man. I mean, you know, they're, they're not doing it much together, but hey, who knows? Maybe Steven Tyler will show up at Allen Fieldhouse <laughs> on Friday night. Wouldn't that bring a wild ride for the kids? I mean, it that would, though. I mean, do you think <laughs> how many of the recruits that KU is going to have in attendance do you think would recognize who Steven Tyler is? None. None. He could be sitting <laughs> right next to them. It'd be cool and, for, for everybody else, but yeah. It would be, and, and, and that's, that's the tricky part about this, not to use a pun mm. there, but, but uh, I really didn't mean that. <laughs> I, I wish you would have meant it. But that is, that is the, 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 the sort of conundrum, right? I mean, like these, these musical acts at late night are typically for recruiting purposes, and, and I just don't know how many kids are going to care that Run DMC's there. Now, I will say this. I think they'll put on a great show. I think when they're there, they'll, they'll feel like it's, it's rocking pretty good. And that's really all that matters because take it from me, an old gray-haired veteran of this business who sat courtside a few years back for Lil Yachty, having heard of Lil Yachty for the first time about three days earlier <laughs> and sitting there and finding myself wildly entertained and enjoying every second of it. And, and I like all kinds of music. It's not, it's not that I'm not a rap fan or a hip hop fan or whatever. I am. Absolutely. I just hadn't heard of Lil Yachty because I'm not young anymore, but there he was entertaining the heck out of me. And obviously he had the whole building going. And so that, that kind of goes to show it's the opposite, right? It's, it's a, it's a young guy impressing an old dude. So what we'll see on Friday night is some old dudes impressing some young guys, but I think it'll happen. I think they'll put on a great show. And I think when that place is rocking and the whole, the whole student section into the, into the hits and feeling good, I think people will feel like, man, this is cool. This is what Allen Fieldhouse is all about. And self talked about a little about that today too. I mean, for for so many of these young guys on this team, even a guy like Dewan Harris or, um, you know, even a guy like Christian Brown. I mean, even though they've been around a little while, you're talking about last year was so different. You know, it, it was so different that they've they've barely had any true experience inside rockin' wild and crazy Allen Fieldhouse. They've experienced it some. None of the younger guys than that have, but but um but now they'll get to and, and late night's a part of that and and uh, I, I keep thinking that that's 
you know, a fairly big reason that a guy like Ochai was, was wanting to come back. I mean, I just, I, I always thought maybe it would even entice Marcus Garrett to come back. Cause I just don't know how, if you've played Kansas basketball for that many years, it's been that big a part of your life. I don't know how you go out with last season where you played in front of 5,000 people at a weird looking field house where the bottom bleachers weren't even pulled out and it just didn't feel anything like what you're used to, you know? So, um, I know self ecstatic to have it all back and to have the fans in there again, and 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 not only for the home home court advantage that it gives KU, but just just because it's more fun. I mean, that was one of the last things he said today. It's time to have some fun again. The last year, year and a half's been tough and hard on these guys, and of course, winning's fun, but boy, there's nothing more fun than showing up and seeing your building rocking and and having it be that way because of you, you know, so they're, they're, they're in for a fun year and, and uh, Friday starts at all run down, run DMC or not, whether they're trash or not, it won't matter. These guys, these guys are going to be good and it's going to be a great year. He is Matt Tate. He'll have his full review on run DMC after uh, late night in the fog on Friday, KU sports.com Lawrence Journal world. Matt, thank you so much for the time as always. You bet, Derek. It won't be the first time you've told me what to write, so I appreciate it. I'll get right on it. <laughs> All right, there we go. All right, that was Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joining us as he does every Tuesday here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. FM 1017-1320-KLWN, one hour down, two to go. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joins us in about 35 minutes from right now, and coming up on the other side, we'll let you listen in, do some more of what Lance Leipold had to say. College football, though, heads into week five, question mark, of the season. It always gets confusing when you have week zero. Um, Clemson is absolutely in shambles right now. The offense is very, very bad for Clemson this year, which is weird because like you understood losing Trevor Lawrence and what that could mean, though Trevor Lawrence hasn't looked too good in the NFL, but DJ Uyunglele came in for those couple games, including the Notre Dame game, and lit things up on the field. He was fantastic. And he lost Travis Etienne, but they returned a lot on the offensive line. They didn't have a great receiving core last year. You returned a lot of the receivers. I have been very perplexed why the offense has been this bad. And you can make a little sense of it in week one when you're playing a Georgia defense that's really good, and it's the first week of the season. Sure, makes sense. But the other games, including the NC State game, this offense is just not good. And the defense is pretty good for Clemson. Like, that is a top 10, top 5 playoff contender level defense. But the offense, I mean, going into last week, they were in the hundreds in yards per play. I haven't checked what it is after the NC State game, but I can't imagine it's much better. Now they're 2-2 two and two with the loss to NC State, which, side note, every time I see NC State do something successful, I wonder how KU screwed up not hiring Dave Doran years ago when instead they got like Charlie Weiss and David Beatty. I, I can't remember when exactly he was candidate for the head coaching job, but you know, he had a couple chances to hire him and you did not. And I think they're okay now with Lance Leipold, but that was some pretty bad whiffs with going with like Charlie Weiss and David Beatty over a guy like Dave Doran. Uh, but now Brian Breesey is out for the season for Clemson. He is one of the stud defensive tackles for the team. This team is in shambles, and it's interesting because the defense is so good that I think they'll still be fine to be a, you know, 8-9 win team, but 
they're clearly not a college football playoff contender. And I think for a lot of people, it's it's kind of exciting that they're not because that means we're going to get new blood in the college football playoff. I'll say this, though, with Clemson. Because the defense is still so good, and at the very least, even though the offense isn't clicking, you still know there's a bunch of four-star recruits, five-star recruits on that offense to make you think there's got to be potential there. And every year, there's usually one or two of these teams where, you know, they might start the year four and three or two and two like Clemson is or one and two. And then they'll just reel off nine straight games or eight straight or five straight or whatever it is. And they'll head into the postseason. They won't necessarily win the conference because they got too far behind the eight ball. But all of a sudden, they're nine and three. They're 10 and two. You know, I think back to 2007, like, the Georgia team that went 10 and 2 and had some early defeats, but then picked it up. And that was with like Matthew Stafford and I think Geno Atkins and AJ Green, no Sean Moran. Like it was a loaded team. But because they lost early, they never had a shot at the national title. They ended up going 10 and 2. And I don't even think they made it into the conference championship game. I think that was Tennessee. Um, and LSU ended up beating Tennessee, going to the national title. If LSU plays Georgia at that point was, quote-unquote, the hottest team in the country, who knows what happens with the college uh, national title in 2007. But Georgia had a really good team that year. I think to Oklahoma last year, where, you know, you lost early, you lose to Kansas State. Um, I forget who the other team they lost to, Iowa State, early in the season. And then all of a sudden you pick it up with your Oklahoma, and by the end of the season, you have no chance of making the playoff with two losses. But... You saw how good that team was at the end of the year, and they absolutely stomped Florida in the Sugar Bowl. So you have this happen. Uh, USC also did this a couple years ago. Uh, Sam Darnold, this was his best year. I want to say it was his richer freshman season. Maybe it was sophomore. I can't remember. Um, They started the year losing two or three in a row, and then they picked it up. They ended up going like 10-3, and 9-3. They made it to the, the Pac-12 um or, or the Rose Bowl because Washington was in the college football playoff. And USC then beat Penn State in an exciting Rose Bowl. They beat Washington along the way, who was a playoff team for Washington's only loss. USC was one of the hottest teams in the country. They were playing as good, if not better, than anyone in the country. But you're just early losses since you are evaluated off a of body of work. It's not just who is the best team right now. It's who has been the best team over the course of the season. And there's a difference there. Um... I feel like that could be Clemson this year. You know, 2-2 two and two right now. Maybe they'll even lose another game along the way in the coming weeks. But then they'll end the season 9-3, and 10-2. Maybe they'll win the ACC. Maybe they won't. They won't be playing in the playoff. But they're going to be playing as good a football as anybody in the country. And we're going to look back on it and go, man, I know they're, uh, they're not going to play for it right now, but I would not want to play that team. There's always that one team. They're the hottest team in the country. They're the team nobody wants to play come December. That's going to be Clemson this year. Uh, as far as the ACC's playoff hopes, though, now they rest on Wake Forest and Boston College because Clemson's 2-2, two and two, North Carolina's 2-2. Two and two, And yes, you know, if you want to get technical, you could say, oh, well, Louisville and NC State, Syracuse, Virginia Tech, Duke, Pittsburgh, they're all one-loss teams. If they win out, those teams aren't going to win out. And I'm not saying Boston College and... Uh, Wake Forest are either, but they're undefeated, which gives you at least maybe a margin for error that you could lose one game. I don't know. That's a good question. But 
They're the only undefeated teams left in the ACC. And obviously not teams you're expecting to go even near undefeated. But if you look at Wake Forest's schedule, they're 4-0 right now. There's a very real chance they wind up at 8-0. So here's their next four games. Louisville at home, at Syracuse, at Army, at Duke at home. I mean, those are four very winnable games. I'm assuming they'll be favorites in all four of those as long as they stack the wins progressively. After that's where it gets tough for Wake Forest. You go at North Carolina, NC State at home, at Clemson, at Boston College. That is a brutal finish to the season for them. But at that point, you're 8-0. You have all the confidence in the world. All of a sudden, you win at North Carolina. Then you get NC State at home. And then Clemson, who knows where they'll be at that point. Who knows? possible for Wake Forest. Uh, For BC, here's their schedule. This is their big stretch upcoming right now. You have at Clemson coming off the loss, NC State at home, and then if you can get out of that, Boston College might be home free. At Louisville, at Syracuse, versus Virginia Tech, at Georgia Tech, versus Florida State, versus Wake Forest. If Boston College gets out of these next two weeks undefeated, they're going to be favored to go 12-0, even if they go 1-1 in these next two there's a chance they get to 12-1. and Now, that's the question. Does a 12-1 and ACC team even make it to the college football playoff this year, given how down the ACC is? And the fact that it's, I don't know, there's kind of the roadblock this year with Oregon has the big win over Ohio State, so they can afford even a loss in conference play. They'll probably, probably still make it a 12-1. and You have Alabama and Georgia, who, if they both go undefeated into the SEC title, both are making it. Now you only have one spot between what would be the Big Ten winner, the Big 12 winner, and the ACC. So a one-loss Boston College still probably doesn't make it in, but they're at least in the discussion, and honestly, it's not that crazy based on that schedule for Boston College to do it. Now, I don't think Boston College is good enough to do that. I was high on them being a breakout team that could win nine games this year. Going 11-1, 12-1, a little bit past that. But I think 10-2 right now is actually very doable for Boston College. Okay, uh, speaking of leagues with dire playoff hopes, Pac-12 seems to be down to just Oregon. And I mentioned that they do have that kind of mulligan because they beat Ohio State that when Oregon inevitably loses some random Pac-12 game, they can still make it to the playoff. If they lose two, though, probably not the case anymore. But if Oregon isn't able to make it into the the playoff, nobody else from Pac-12 is going to do so. There are only three other teams that have even just one loss through four weeks of the season. So, I mean, at the end of the year, the second best team in the Pac-12 is probably going to have at minimum three losses. They might even have four at the end of the year. So it's just Oregon at this point. Oklahoma might be the one chance along with, I don't know, I guess Oklahoma State, Baylor undefeated and stuff, but we'll talk with Kevin Flaherty about this as we talk to Big 12, but I think Oklahoma is probably the only realistic shot left in the Big 12 to make it, but they keep winning close, and obviously the defense is actually really good. It might not really matter because there's not another top-tier Big 12 team, it seems like. I mean, again, maybe Baylor's that. Texas looked really good, but let's not forget what they were against Arkansas. Oklahoma State's 4-0, but they've won those games by combined 24 points including games against Tulsa, Missouri State. TCU just got beat by SMU. K-State lost to Oklahoma State. Iowa State has two losses. It's not a murderer's row for Oklahoma. So even though they have been winning close and, you know, they're they're scathing by here, it's not as if they're going to face another top-ten opponent. 
I guess Baylor could get up there. We've seen that before. Uh, it's honestly too bad, though, that BYU isn't in the league at the moment because BYU has been really good. BYU actually plays Baylor in a few weeks, so that'll be a nice little Big 12 showdown. Uh, but right now, this Oklahoma team feels a bit like that 2014 Florida State team that Jameis Winston just kept pulling rabbits out of the hat as they were trying to defend their national title. And they ended up going undefeated. They made the playoff, but everybody's like, yeah, I mean, you got to put them in. They're undefeated. They won a power five. Are they really one of the four best teams? And turns out, no, they were not because you had TCU and Baylor not make the playoff who were probably better than that Florida State team. I feel like that's Oklahoma, and they're bound for a loss. They're not going to keep up the magic. I kind of think they're going to lose to K-State this week. How good are they really? We're going to find out in this next week or two. Uh, Arkansas, how good are they? They're a really good football team, but I am a little protrubed that my futuristic prediction is coming true. If you remember, Texas A&M in week two went to Colorado, played a crummy Colorado squad, and beat them 10-7. to And it was a game that Texas A&M did not inspire much to the fact that they are a really good football team. And it was a game they were down 7-3 to most of the game. Colorado ended up giving up the late touchdown, though. Texas A&M went up 10-7. They held it from there. But Colorado, like, these are their results outside of Texas A&M. 35-7 win over Northern Colorado. They lost 30 to nothing to Minnesota, a Minnesota squad who just lost to Bowling Green, mind you. And they just lost 35-13 to at Arizona State. This is a Colorado offense that is very bad on the offensive side of the football. I mean, you're talking about 330 or 340 passing yards and one passing touchdown for this Colorado offense so far through four games. A Colorado offense that has 20 points in their three FBS games. And AM barely beat them by the skin of their teeth. They didn't get penalized too much. They only, I think, dropped two spots in the rankings. And it was only because Iowa beat Iowa State, who was ranked, so they jumped. And Oregon beat Ohio State, so they jumped. AM barely suffered. They were ranked number seven. Clearly, it was not the seventh best team in the country. They also had struggled with Kent State the week before. And I knew this was going to happen. Texas AM was clearly not as good as their ranking at number seven. And they were bound to lose to a good team in the SEC. And because Colorado didn't take that away from AM, to where it would have maybe dropped AM out of the rankings altogether, or at the very least dropped them into the 20s. Now, because they just gave by by the skin of their teeth and didn't get discredited for how bad they performed against a bad team, an SEC team who beats them will get the credit, which only is going to strengthen the SEC. And so instead of Arkansas beating a Texas A&M team that's probably closer to the 20th or, or so best team in the country, Arkansas gets credit for beating number seven AM, which boosts Arkansas up the rankings, which now will boost the team that beats Arkansas. And guess who Arkansas plays this week? That would be the Georgia Bulldogs, the number two team in the country. Georgia's going to beat them. Georgia's going to get all the credit in the world for beating a great Arkansas team. When in reality, Arkansas beat an AM team that is not actually a top 10 opponent. And this is how the circle of life happens. And the SEC, they just keep beating up on each other and strengthening their resumes by getting other top 25 victories. And that's a perfect example of how that gets inflated. Last up for the college football whip around. So far, so good for Cincinnati's playoff path. Um, obviously, it comes with the caveat that they have to go unbeaten for that to even be a possibility. But through three games, they've looked good and they won at Indiana. 
and outside of what they can control are, are the big factors here. Because like I said, to start, you have to go undefeated if you're Cincinnati to even have a shot. And that might not even be enough. So you need those external factors. Well, here are some of those factors. One, you look to some of those other conferences like the ACC. And, you know, you might not have a playoff team from the ACC. The Big Ten. Maybe you will, but if Ohio State loses again, um, are you going to trust Penn State, Michigan, to Iowa to finish the season undefeated? Who knows what happens there? Big 12. Again, we just talked about that. Like, is Oklahoma really going to be good enough to go undefeated? Doesn't seem like it. I wouldn't be betting on any other Big 12 team to go undefeated or maybe even have one loss at this point. So you get into a situation of it's opening up. Maybe there's going to be more spots available for us. And also, your biggest game of the season comes this week. It's against Notre Dame. You want that Notre Dame, if obviously you have to beat them to be eligible here, you want that win to be as prominent and powerful as possible. And so you need Notre Dame to win their other games. Well, Notre Dame has scathed by so far and stayed undefeated. And last week, they destroyed Wisconsin, which allows now for this Cincinnati-Notre Dame matchup to be a top-10 showdown, which would be even bigger boost. For Cincinnati, and here's the other thing, also featured on Cincinnati's schedule, SMU, who's now 4-0 and just won at TCU. That's big for Cincinnati. Tulane, who almost beat Oklahoma. UCF, who beat Mountain West perennial contender Boise State, and a Boise State team who almost beat Oklahoma State, who's one of the top teams in the Big 12. So some certain things are kind of opening up that the path is feeling good for Cincinnati if they can stay undefeated, but obviously the big if when you play Notre Dame this week and you still got to get through a college football season undefeated, which is no easy task regardless of who you are because you're banking on 18, 19, 20-year-olds. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 at 1320 KLWN. Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports, joins us in 20 minutes. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Big 12 had an interesting week last week. Baylor had a big win over Iowa State. Oklahoma State stays undefeated, taking down Kansas State. Oklahoma remains undefeated, but they are barely scathing by seemingly each and every week. So let's start with Baylor, who had beaten KU the week before. And watching them play, you weren't sure how good this team was. They struggled a little bit in week one with Texas State. Uh, but I think it's pretty easy to see now, and I think this has got to make you feel a little better about that KU-Baylor game. If you are a KU fan, uh, based on the Bears' performance against Iowa State, this team is a very good football team. You know, it's funny you say that. I was talking to a friend after the game and somebody else who who covers Big 12 football, and we agreed on two things I think that you can take from that game. One is that Baylor is massively improved from where it was last season. And the other thing is, is I still have no idea what that means in terms of just how good the Bears are. You know, that was a game where Baylor was was really outgained. You know, they scored a lot on special teams, and and we always used to say, Derek, there was, there was kind of a saying around the Big 12 that, that Bill Snyder led the league and probably led college football all time 
in number of victories where the other team walks off the field feeling like they were the better team and lost anyway. And I think when you watch that Baylor-Iowa State game, it's not that Baylor played poorly or anything like that, but it really came from the hidden yardage things, the special teams, and and different things like that where Iowa State probably left the field feeling like they left a victory on the field, feeling like they were a better team than Baylor. And yet you look at that win-loss column on Monday and, you know, Iowa State has won by the loss column and, and Baylor has won by the win column. And so a really impressive win for Baylor uh, from the standpoint of, of knocking off Iowa State, from beating Iowa State, and yet at the same time, I'm not sure that it says a, a ton about Baylor moving forward in terms of being a Big 12 dark horse or, or what have you, just because I think there are some things that happened in that game that maybe would be a little bit difficult to replicate on a week-to-week basis. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. Well, on the flip side, Iowa State's interesting because now you have two losses early in the year for a team that had all these expectations, but now they enter the month of October, which has been quite kind to them over the past couple months. So uh, what's the best case scenario for the Cyclones at this point? Iowa State arguably should have wins over over Iowa and Baylor and be sitting here with all their expectations and all their hopes still right there on the table. And that's the frustrating thing if you're a Cyclone fan is this is a situation that feels like it, it could have been avoided. You feel like, hey, maybe we should only have one loss or or even have no losses heading into October. Instead, there's two. One of them was to your rival. One of them is to a conference school. And all of a sudden, you're kind of behind that eight ball in terms of where you want to get this season. I think, obviously, as as weird as it sounds to say so early in the season, as we saw with Oklahoma last year, the college football playoff is gone. It's not there for Iowa State anymore. And so... The people who thought the Cyclones might sneak in, who thought, hey, this is a team that's maybe the fifth or sixth best team in the in the country and they have a really good chance of reaching the college football playoff, that's off the table. Even if they win out, even if they beat Oklahoma twice, if Oklahoma is, in fact, the, the other team in the Big 12 title game, we saw with Oklahoma last year that two losses, even if they come really early in the season, it, it's just too much to overcome. And so I think that's off the table. As far as a a conference championship, the margin for error is now non-existent pretty much. Iowa State could potentially reach it with, you know, two or three conference losses. They've already got one. And so you're sitting here in a situation where you need that strong October to kind of nudge yourself up to the point where you believe again that, hey, we can get to that Big 12 title game. There have been some injuries and and players banged up and and different things like that. And and I think Iowa State would even say, well, we haven't quite hit our stride just yet. But at the same time, coming out of September, it's pretty much the opposite of a place from where the Cyclones wanted to be in terms of where they thought this team could go and what they'd be able to do. Oklahoma State is undefeated right now, um, but they've won their four games by a combined 24 points. Oklahoma is 4-0 and right now, and they've won their three FBS games by a combined 15 points. Uh, which of those two teams, 4-0, and feels more sustainable, and which one 
feels more like their balloon is about to pop. I think Oklahoma feels sustainable. The reason why is we saw last year Oklahoma really struggle with its offensive line early in the year, and Bill Biedenboe was able to to get those guys humming by the end of the year, by the end of the season. Oklahoma had a typically Oklahoma offensive line, and they're going through some of those same issues. You know, Spencer Rattler hasn't quite been crisp yet. You know, had fans chanting for for the five star freshman over there in Caleb Williams because he hasn't come out to the sort of start that people expected from a Heisman Trophy candidate. But when you look at what Oklahoma's doing, the defense has been pretty strong, and the defense has been the better unit. And I think if you were to bet on one thing in the Big Twelve, you would bet that Lincoln Riley will find a way to get something going offensively. You know, that's where everybody expects Oklahoma's strength to be. And there's too much talent. There's too much talent in those coaching offices and everything for for Oklahoma to be out here, you know, winning games with fewer than 20 points scored, you know, into November. And so I think that Oklahoma's is more sustainable. Oklahoma State, I'm having a really hard time kind of getting a beat on just just how good they are as well. I thought they were pretty impressive against the Kansas State team that, you know, obviously didn't have an ideal situation throwing the ball with, with Will Howard in there and, and everything else. I don't think that Oklahoma State right now as it stands is is one of, say, the top two or three teams in the Big 12. That doesn't mean they can't get there. I just don't think they're there right now. But at the same time, they're they're sitting there the exact opposite of Iowa State with that you know, perfect record where you're sitting there saying, okay, you know, they're, they haven't played as well as you would have liked, but at the same time, they're exactly where they want to be from a wins and losses standpoint. If they can fix or, or tweak a couple things, you know, maybe they can be right there. So where is the, the separation of, of tiers, I guess, in the Big 12? I mean, I mean, how much, uh, I guess, of a difference is there between, I don't know, team one or two versus team six or seven right now? Well, first of all, Derek, I don't know who team one is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's probably going to be Oklahoma by the end of the year. But, you know, our, our own Nick Costco over at 24-7 Sports did a video a day or so ago. And, you know, I was I was watching it and he said that, hey, when you look at it right now, Texas looks like the best team in the Big 12. And, and you know, I, I kind of wanted to to be that gift where you raise your finger a little bit to say, but wait, wait, but I'm not sure they aren't. And, and that's the thing about it is Texas went to Arkansas and got absolutely smashed, but, you know, made some changes, has looked better since. Obviously, Arkansas has continued its run and put down Texas A&M last weekend. And so all of a sudden, you're sitting here saying, I'm not entirely sure that as of right now, if Texas and Oklahoma were to roll out a, a football in Dallas at 3 p.m. you know tomorrow or whatever, that Texas wouldn't win that ball game and be the better team. And so there's not much separation, I think, and it's tough to draw the line for for tears because where do you draw the line with Baylor and Iowa State? You know, Baylor just beat Iowa State, obviously, but. It was on Baylor's home field. Usually you give, what, a field goal for home field? They won by two points in kind of, 
you know, a weird, funky way. So when you're trying to decide who's better, is Iowa State still the better team? Is Iowa State better than Oklahoma State, who hasn't played Iowa, hasn't played a Baylor yet, I don't think. It's really tough to separate out, okay, this team is one, there's a line, these next two are, are there. I think you're legitimately looking at four or five teams right now that are kind of in, in that same discussion where depending on what happens in, in a given week, you, you could move a team up or down. Maybe you feel like Baylor's better than Iowa State this week, but not next week. And and so that makes it really tough to tell who the best teams in the conference are, much less you know where the separation lies where you start to say, okay, these teams are significantly lower than, than these other ones. And that's incredible to me. And it makes me wonder, you know, if somebody goes undefeated through the Big 12, which at this point you're looking at what, Oklahoma, Baylor, Oklahoma State, um, they're going to make the playoff. But I have serious questions, If and obviously it depends on what the other stuff looks like. And right now the ACC, I mentioned this earlier, like you might be down to Boston College and Wake Forest. Um <laughs> So uh, you have an opening there. Who knows with the Big Ten with Ohio State losing, but I would still think they'll probably be in at least a, a decent position between Ohio State or Penn State or Michigan or whatever. Um, it feels like to me that if there's a one-loss Big 12 champion and you have to compare them to either an undefeated Notre Dame or an undefeated Cincinnati or even a one-loss SEC runner-up in Georgia or Alabama, I, I don't think there's any way they're going to get in right now because we're having these conversations about – well, is Texas the best team in the Big 12, or is TCU still one of the top two or three teams? And in both their cases, uh, you know, with TCU, you lose to SMU at home. With Texas, there's no way, even if Texas won out from here, how do you possibly excuse having Texas in over, like, a one-loss Georgia or Alabama who lost in their SEC title when Texas got blown out against Arkansas? Sure. And, you know, the most optimistic people, I think, would look at it and say, if Texas goes undefeated, well, Casey Thompson didn't start that game. You know, you can you can make some different uh, – put in some different qualifiers. There is, there, but they lost by so but, much. But they did. They did. And they were dominated up front. And, you know, regardless of who you have playing quarterback, it's tough to win when you're just not as good up front. And – to your point, Derek, if you're having those discussions and you're talking about versus a one-loss SEC runner-up, at that point, you're likely talking about Arkansas finishing, you know, maybe not even second in the SEC West. And so if Texas's blowout loss comes to the third or even fourth best team in the SEC West, all, all of a sudden, you know, that, that thing really, really doesn't look that great and we've seen in the past Oklahoma has been able to survive bad losses from a quality standpoint where they lost to a team that they really shouldn't have lost to but generally speaking those are games with a close final margin you know they didn't get blown out and so people were kind of able to excuse it in putting the Sooners forward but no it's it's absolutely a good point that if there is a one-loss Big 12 team, whether it's Texas or or whether it's Oklahoma losing to somebody else or 
or whatever, all of a sudden you start looking at the Big 12's college football playoff entry, you know, maybe not being the best at this point just based on what all else is going on. Yeah, and you know what? I just, I just envisioned the perfect scenario. Oklahoma goes 12-1. and one. They, they lose at K-State this week or something, or, or they lose some other game because they've been playing with fire with these close games. And then they win out. They, they win the conference. They go 12-1. and one. Uh, BYU beats Baylor and goes undefeated. And Cincinnati beats Notre Dame this week. They go undefeated. And you're having a discussion between Oklahoma, the team leaving the Big 12, and BYU and Cincinnati, the teams entering the Big 12 for the final spot in the playoff. Well, and we, we've talked about the SEC in the past, Derek, and it's, it's one of those things that really hurts the Big 12, too, is that matter of perception where if the SEC, everybody beats everybody up, it's because everybody's so strong. Right. In the Big 12, if everybody beats each other up and there's you know a couple one-loss teams or whatever else, it's because the league isn't that good <laughs> and there isn't a team in the league that, that deserves to be in that discussion. And, and even beyond that, I think that there's been an appetite to put in somebody like a Cincinnati. And obviously Cincinnati is going to be coming to the Big 12, you know, post-haste. But I also think that there's a little bit of that, okay, if somebody's going to get blown out in that one versus four game, which has been what has happened of late, we'd like to see this team get a shot for winning every game that's on its schedule, you know, because there's nothing more that the players can do. And that's one of the reasons, you know, not to go on too much of a tangent, but that's one of the reasons some people like myself have been for, you know, extending out the playoff a little bit is basically you look at the kids and you say, the only thing that the players can control is they can control what happens with the games that are in front of them. They can't control which games are scheduled. They can't control what happens in other things. If they go out and they win every single game in front of them, they should have a chance to play for a national title if they're you know, among the best in that group of five or, or however you want to describe it. And so I do think that while expansion for the college football playoff could be coming down the road, this might be a really interesting year if the scenario that you just talked about happened where maybe, you know, a Cincinnati or BYU or somebody like that. And remember, Cincinnati and BYU just got, you know, basically the sticker on their chest that says you're Power 5 worthy, even though they aren't, you know, in a Power 5 league just yet. It would be sort of the ideal time, I would think, for for one of them to potentially get their shots in that scenario. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work at 247sports.com. Kevin, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty of 247 Sports joining us here. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Five o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up in just a little, we'll play the rest of what Lance Leipold had to say to the media coming up later this hour. But right now, we didn't get to it yesterday. It's time for Derek's deep deliberations as we do during the KU football season. Note number one, whoever does the review job upstairs, because I'm assuming that's a role. I mean, most colleges have that as a role for somebody upstairs, whether it's one of the assistants or um, one of the analysts or something. It is their job 
to make sure that if there is a review that needs to be challenged by the head coach, they're able to relay that information downstairs and get a challenge. And right now, KU has, I don't know, maybe fallen behind a little bit in those reviews. So week one against South Dakota, you almost lose the game. If you would have got that challenge and got the first down, which who knows, maybe you don't overturn that challenge because it's harder to see the ball in the QB sneak in the middle of the field. But if you get that, you pick up the first down. It felt like it was obvious they got the first down. They didn't challenge it. It was weird. Then against Duke, you could argue the the punt where KU got blocked into the punt returner and they said that it wasn't. I, I don't know if that's a reviewable play, but the play that should have been reviewed was before that on the drive where KU threw to the sideline and they called it an incomplete pass because they thought the receiver trapped it. I can't remember who would have caught the ball for KU, but he clearly caught it and was inbound down the sidelines and they didn't review it. It was like a 20-yard gain. So whoever does the review upstairs needs to find a different role for KU and they need to get somebody else, one of the other analysts, in charge of doing the review stuff. Thought number two, KU isn't just losing because they have players who aren't strong or fast or experienced enough. That's obviously a big part. And they need to get more experience and stronger and faster and better players in there and more developed players in there. But there have been far too many questionable decisions to this point. And, uh, you know, it's okay to criticize without jumping to the conclusion of, oh, this ain't working. Still like the way the staff is going. Still like the future that the staff provides. But after being so aggressive in the first couple of games, you go to running the ball on second and 23, you run it on third and 11 at the 12-yard line when you're trying to go in to get a touchdown, you have the shotgun run up the middle on fourth down against Coastal Carolina. Maybe it's just protection from maybe not totally trusting the players right now, but it's very frustrating when at Kansas right now with where you are, and even when you do get to the point of where you want to be, you have to take advantage of every little thing. You have to milk every single ounce of possibility to give you the best chance to win the game. And I think for the most part, the coaching staff has. They're going for it. They're being aggressive on fourth downs. But a couple of those, like I said, the run on second and 23, the run on third and 11, where you're basically just giving up at that point and saying, yeah, we're fine kicking a field goal. Those are plays you can't have at Kansas. And... You have penalties in key spots. You have missed tackles. All those things really add up. You can't afford to make those decisions or the lack of decision to go for it if you're KU. Thought number three, KU is better without Velton Gardner at the running back position. Devin Neal had his best game yet. How about Tory Lachlan? Um, Tory Lachlan was mainly playing the first few weeks, it seemed like, because, oh, well, he's going to be, you know, a running back who's going to sacrifice his body. He'll be a good pass blocker. We'll use him occasionally, but... Who knows what he's going to provide in the actual running game. Well, I think we found out. When you get the ball in his hands, he's electric. And if you go back, and I remember when he first committed to KU and, and was coming in the signing class, and you watched his highlight tape from playing quarterback, it was phenomenal with what he did. But you didn't know how that was going to translate. You didn't know what he was going to play. Open up the season on the two deep at the receiver position as a backup. I think he was the slot receiver as the backup there. But due to depth issues, Daniel High shot out for the year. Maury Pesci-Kickson was out week one. Now, Velton Gardner transfers. You needed another guy there. And Tory Lachlan has just sacrificed everything, continues to just do whatever's best for the team, move to different positions. He's got to be one of everybody's favorite players on the team, just in terms of the story 
of not even the story, but you know, having a guy who's willing to sacrifice all that, having a guy who doesn't care what he needs to do, whatever it is to help the team win. And he looked really good as a running back um, with the ball in his hands beyond having good grades as, as a blocker as well. And obviously with Devin Neal and Tory Lachlan going off, it's not just that they probably had the best games of their careers, but it's also in part because the run blocking was a lot better for the offensive line against Duke. KU had a 72.4 run block grade, according to Pro Football Focus. That is by far the best run block grade that KU has had this season. In fact, no other game has even topped a 54 run block grade this season. So leaps and bounds better. And yes, you could say, well, Duke's not that good, so you should have a better run blocking game against them. Yes, that's true. But keep in mind, like you played South Dakota week one, and I would venture to guess Duke's defensive line is more talented, is better than South Dakota's defensive line. So that is a clear marked sign of improvement. And specifically, Michael Ford, Earl Bostick, Malik Clark, they had really strong run blocking games. Mike Nowitzki was stronger in the pass blocking game than the run blocking game, but very encouraging stuff, which you saw from the offensive line. And clearly, you do have that talent that you need at the running back position. Thought number four, KU right now is just getting absolutely destroyed on key downs. This is less of a thought and more of a statement. Uh, for one, they're just not as good as the other team. So that would kind of make sense, right? I mean, the better team is going to convert better on third downs because they are just better, right? Um, but second off, if you're stuck in third and eight every time, which see number one for why you're stuck in third and eight, and, and the opponent is in third and three, which team is going to convert more? Of course, it's going to be the opponent. It's not something I'm expecting to be fixed this season because, you know, Leipold and his staff are committed to the running game and trying to establish that wide zone attack, even though it's not totally working all the time though it was a lot more successful against Duke, are going to lead to that. But I can't fault you for that. Even when it's not working, even when it hasn't worked in the first three games, you know, I, it's a little ridiculous to me when you run on second and 23, when you run on third and 11. But I, I don't blame them if you're running on second and eight or on first and 10 or, you know, on second and nine because you're trying to establish what you want to do schematically. You don't have to try to uh, establish what you're doing schematically on third and 11 running the ball or on second and 23. Those are different stories. So this is a little bit different there, but I can't fault them for that because it'd be one thing if we were in year three and it's just running into a wall over and over again. But in year one, it's about the long term. So you have to keep trying it in games to improve on it for the future. But because that's the dilemma you're in, the trade-off will likely be worse conversion rates. And I think Kansas is just going to have to kind of live with that this season. Thought number five and the final one here for Derek's deep deliberations before we get to our uh, special teams update. I, I still don't understand why Nick Channel isn't playing more. Um, you know, he's not the fastest guy in the world. So I, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, this guy's just this perfect linebacker and KU's never playing him. You know, he's not going to be ultra effective in pass coverage, given. Um, but this is two straight weeks he's been one of the top-graded defensive players for KU in very limited snaps. And he was the top-graded linebacker this week, according to Pro Football Focus, in limited snaps as well. But he got just six snaps against Duke uh, in this game. And this was after, like I said, against Baylor, kind of in mop-up duty as well. Played well in limited snaps again. And 
like I said, it's not that he's a perfect player, but you hear the coaches in the preseason and his teammates talking about him and talking about how you know uh, smart of a player he is and, and how much he knows the defense and how much of a hard hitter he is. So, yes, you might not be getting as much in pass coverage and he might not be the fastest guy in the world, but, you know, if he's even good at one thing, if he specializes in one thing, that's kind of an improvement from where the linebacking core is right now. Now, Rich Miller had 14 tackles. He actually graded out pretty well in the game. Tywan Berryhill graded out okay. Uh, Gavin Potter just continues to struggle. I mean, Gavin Potter had a 33 tackle grade in this game. And I'm not necessarily saying that Nick Channel's the best linebacker and needs to start, but I think he needs to be more par a part of this uh, rotation than we've seen um, recently. All right, special teams update. I believe even on the year coming into this one, though it was plus two in South Dakota and you fared a little bit worse in the recent games. I, I, maybe you'd count a minus one. I think you probably would for the Borsilla missed field goal. That's definitely worth it. I wish I could give a minus one for KU just averaging only 33 yards per punt on four punts because that's not going to get it done, but I won't. I'll just say minus one on the field goal, but Duke didn't have any kick returns. Duke didn't have any punt returns, so... Overall, you know, you didn't mess up if you're KU on the special teams unit, which is always a nice positive uh, moving forward. All right, that is Derek's Deep Deliberations, KU Football Edition, here on Rock Shock Sports Talk. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.